Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to Women Belong in the House. With women leading the way, we will succeed. Thank you. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. In these first few episodes, we're talking about why there are fewer women in office and why often women don't want to run. This week, we're talking about the Republican Party. When it comes to women in office, the status quo is not equal on both sides of the aisle. There are currently 84 voting women in the House of Representatives. They make up 19.3% of the 435 members, according to the Center for American Women in Politics. 61 of the women are Democrats and 23 are Republicans. When I spoke with Jay Newton-Small, the author of Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, she talked about the imbalance. In order for women to be effective, you can't just have women on one side, Democratic women. It is a huge challenge to get Republicans to elect women to the House, and it's something with which they have really struggled. In fact, they've done a lot better in electing, proportionally speaking, women to the Senate than they have to the House. Maria Stark put the contrast between the two parties in perspective. She's the co-founder of Emerge America, an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. If you look at the percent of Republican women compared to Republican men, it's only in the high single digits at this point in time in federal office. And if you compare that to other countries, let's say the Republicans were a country, then we would rank 165th in the world down near Mali and the Congo. These are authoritarian states. On the Democratic side, a third of members of Congress that are Democrats are women. If the Democrats were a country, we would rank like Switzerland, you know, amongst the land of democracies. I think this is something that very few people are dialed into. And I think it's really important. And that's one reason why I, even though I personally, as a Democrat, you know, I'm not going to be working on any Republican woman's campaign anytime soon. But I very, very much hope that more Republican women step up and run and help to heal their party. In this year of the woman, there are significantly fewer Republican women on the ballot. Before primaries, 356 Democratic women and 120 Republican women filed to run for the House of Representatives. In the general election, 187 Democratic women are still in the running, compared to 52 Republicans. Christine Matthews spoke with me on this. She's a professional pollster who identified as a Republican for decades. She recently changed her party affiliation to independent. What you're seeing is really different success rates in terms of primaries. So for this year, for example, if you're a challenger, if you're a woman running for the House and you're not an incumbent and you're a Democrat, your win rate is about 45%. And if you're a Republican challenger running in a Republican primary, your win rate as a woman is 20%. 
So you're just not, if you're a Republican woman, you're just not getting out of your primary. And there's fewer of you who are running anyway. So what's the deal? Why is there this imbalance? Once again, I want to reiterate that every woman and every political race is different. We're examining some of the broad themes we see, but that doesn't mean that the explanations on this episode are exhaustive. In fact, the subject of women and the Republican Party could be, and maybe someday will be, a whole podcast series by itself. Now that that's been said, let's talk about why there are so many fewer women candidates who are Republicans. First of all, there are simply fewer women who identify as Republicans to begin with. Women are more likely to identify as Democrats. They are more likely to be registered as Democrats. That's Debbie Walsh. She's the director for the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. We think it is largely because of economic issues and that women feel more economically vulnerable than men. They see themselves as at some point needing a social safety net that government provides and which party is the party that provides that social safety net that funds it, that supports it. It's the Democratic Party. I was surprised when Debbie said that. I would have thought social issues were the reason more women identify as Democrats. She said the vast majority of people vote based on the economy. People care about their pocketbooks. In addition to the fact that women, and particularly college-educated women, skew Democratic, there's a difference between the core values of the two parties that makes it easier for Democratic women to run. Here's Christine Matthews again. If you look at the Democratic primary electorate, they are a majority female. And Democratic women place a very high value on electing women because they're women. So if you look at polling and you look at the difference between Democrats and Republicans, Democrats, particularly Democratic women, say it's important to elect women candidates. It's important to have diversity. It's important that more women you know, are elected to Congress. It makes things better for our country. Republicans, on the other hand, including and even in some cases, especially Republican women say, no, it's not that important to elect women to office. You know, we shouldn't be electing candidates because of their gender. That creates an opportunity for Democrats to raise money and rouse support for women candidates. A major hurdle for Republican women running for office is the party's general dislike of something called identity politics. Here's Debbie Walsh again. There's a fundamental ideological difference, which is the Democratic Party embraces the concept of identity politics, right? That identities matter, that they make a difference, that there's a reason, a substantive reason, not just, oh, we want to be more inclusive, but that there's a substantive reason why you want to have more people of color in office, why you want to have more women in office. And they can talk about that and they can fundraise around that and they can recruit candidates around that. And it's part of the philosophy of the party. Republicans really shy away from the concept of identity politics. In fact, they don't just shy away from it. Paul Ryan has publicly said the reason that there is the partisan rancor in Congress is because of identity politics. So it's very hard if you're the Republican Party to go out and make the case for why we need to raise money specifically to elect more women, why we need to specifically recruit more women, if you can't talk about a substantive value added to having their voices there. If you talk to the Republican women in Congress, they absolutely believe that they are bringing something different to the table. But as a party, they can't talk about that. 
Not only do Republican women have a harder time because the party doesn't necessarily push diversity in leadership, they actually suffer from the perception that women are more moderate. It's particularly challenging because of a little thing called gerrymandering. Every 10 years in the U.S., there's the census, where we count how many people live in the country and where those people are located. Once the census takes place, state governments redraw districts in which people vote and have their representatives. When voting districts are redrawn to benefit one party over another in elections, it's called gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is a real problem, which does sound mundane, but the results can be significant. In Pennsylvania, 44% of the voters chose Democratic candidates for the House of Representatives in 2014. But 13 of the 18 districts, more than two-thirds, are represented by Republicans. Those numbers are way out of proportion to what people should expect. You wouldn't accept Neapolitan ice cream that was 75% strawberry. (laughs) How is that okay? What perverts voted for this? Here's Michael Latner to explain more. He's an associate professor in the political science department at California Polytechnic State University. Generally, the House is much less representative than it was at any other time since we've really had full voting rights. And that happens for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is gerrymandering. This last round of gerrymandering before the 2012 elections has really put us in a position that is a sort of smoldering constitutional crisis in terms of representation, because the House is supposed to be the single body that represents the people and the people alone, as Madison put it. Yet what we have seen with the massive increase in gerrymandering, which basically tripled uh, from the last redistricting cycle in congressional districts, is that we're now seeing the composition of the House of Representatives effectively selected by state legislatures who are gerrymandering those districts every 10 years rather than the people choosing their representatives every two years. Congressional districts are becoming more polarized. We're certainly seeing more safe districts in addition to gerrymandered districts. And when you don't have to compete for a seat, you get more ideological representation. The great irony is that of the two chambers of Congress, the Senate is actually now more representative in terms of ideology. That is, you know, how liberal or conservative is your average representative compared to your constituents. The Senate is actually more moderate and it looks more like the American public if we look at public opinion polls. Here's Jay Newton-Small again. The gerrymandering that goes into House districts plays against women because you have these solid Republican districts where people are much more concerned with primaries than they are with the general election. And in a primary fight, it's almost always the most committed wins, right? Usually the person hardest to the right wins. And for better or for worse, women are perceived to be more moderate than their other Republican male counterparts, even if that's not true. Even if you're like Michelle Bachman and clearly not a moderate on the Republican side, voters will perceive you that way unless you become like Michelle Bachman, a very outspoken Tea Party activist and who's very loudly proclaims her conservatism. It's very hard for women to clear those Tea Party primaries on the Republican side because they are inherently viewed as more moderate. And that's why you see so few women being elected to the Senate and to the House. Republican women have a hard time because of the core beliefs of the party and the structure of House districts. Those challenges exacerbate hurdles women already face when it comes to fundraising. They also don't have the same amount of infrastructure that you see on the Democratic side. Emily's List and other Democratic groups help women through primaries. 
Emily's List is an organization that was created to help elect pro-choice Democratic women to office. Much more to come on them in future episodes. There's almost no Republican women's groups that will play in primaries. They started one as part of the National Republican Campaign Committee a few years ago. They played in one primary in 2014. She lost, and then they stopped doing it completely. This isn't a place where they have chosen to invest, and it remains a place where they have not chosen to invest. And so I think one of the biggest challenges for the House is to figure out how to elect more Republican women. Political careers don't just start at the federal level. And the challenges women face generally are true at the local level, too. There isn't much support for women running on the Republican side when it comes to further down-ballot races and even congressional primaries. Jennifer Lim and Megan Malloy founded Republican Women for Progress. You know, we're seeing so many Republican women running for the first time, but it's kind of been tough for them. That's Megan Malloy. This is a really difficult year for moderate Republican women to run because the primaries have become such houses of extremism. Here's her partner, Jennifer Lim. What we've been seeing with the women we've been tracking this year, we've only had a handful of women make it through the primary, and none of them have been the super moderate women, which is really frustrating because those are oftentimes the women that we need their voices to kind of get the party back on the right track. The Republican Party just doesn't have the tools in place to recruit and empower women to run for office like the Democratic Party does. You look at groups like Emily's List that have been around for so many years that start at a very local and state level and climb all the way up to the national level and are able to give women everything from campaign contributions to policy training to everything that they need to run a campaign. And Republicans haven't. And not that that's necessarily an excuse why folks aren't running, but I think that that makes a huge difference. You know, we've talked to a lot of folks on both sides of this issue. And, you know, when men are asked to run for office, their first question is, okay, well, am I going to win? And when women are asked, it's like, okay, well, how am I going to do this? Like, where do I get the money? What kind of help do I need? And they need that support system in place. And that just hasn't been a thing within the party. And I think that's what we're kind of hoping to do is, one, be able to recruit women from a very local level all the way up to a national level. And then two, so that they will eventually be able to be role models so that more young Republican women will be encouraged to be involved in politics and to run for office. Which brings us to our candidate of the week. My name is Christina Ospania, and I'm a candidate for the United States House of Representatives seeking to represent the 14th District of California. Christina's not a stereotypical Republican. She's an immigrant, she's a person of color, and she openly says she didn't vote for President Trump. Christina was born in the Philippines in 1968, 52 years after the first U.S. woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress, and 48 years after women in the U.S. won the right to vote. I was born in the Philippines to a political family. And when I was born, I think one year later, my grandfather ran for president against Ferdinand Marcos. It was the last democratic election that Marcos held before he became a dictator. He bombed my grandfather. I was around two or three when that happened. And my grandfather was dead for four minutes and permanently crippled and probably lost some mental acuity and left the Philippines, kind of got the hint. Obviously, my family was not going to be safe there. And in order for him to try and maintain a hold on my grandfather, he arrested my father. I was three when all of that happened. So my memories of my childhood really begin around then, right? And by the age of six, my mother took me and my brother to the United States. And 
We didn't know it, but my father was planning to escape. He escaped two years later. Otherwise, I had, you know, a childhood that was kind of anonymous growing up in Los Angeles in the United States. And my family was kind of very consumed with what was happening in the Philippines. And in the meantime, I was growing up this total American kid. Marcos was eventually toppled by the Philippines' first woman president, Cory Aquino. Ferdinand Marcos is a man without a country tonight. After 20 years as president of the Philippines, Marcos, his family, and some political associates have fled Manila. Marcos left behind a nation rejoicing. Tens of thousands of people poured through the streets of Manila and other large cities all day and all night. They danced and sang and chanted the name of their new president, Corazon Aquino. Christina's family returned to the Philippines, but to her, it didn't really feel like home. So she returned to the U.S., went to Berkeley, and then went into journalism. To make money on the side, Christina became an administrator at an investment bank. She rose through the ranks in banking, moved from San Francisco to New York, and eventually decided to go work at a hedge fund in order to better balance work and family. Christina's childhood experiences of political turmoil created an understanding that her life as an individual could be dramatically impacted by events of global political importance. She found that to be true again when she was living in New York. It was 2001, and like many New Yorkers and Americans across the country, Christina found a new sense of American identity. I was just a regular person living in the United States. And so, you know, I never thought about being civically conscious here. I was in my early 30s, so I was having a lot of fun in New York. And 9-11 happened, and I was on my way to work, and I heard it on the taxi radio that a plane had hit. And then I heard a second plane hit the World Trade Center, and I thought, oh, that's strange. And when I walked into the office, everybody on the trading floor was staring at the television. I actually had gone outside, and I saw them as well, like with my own eyes. The towers were up in smoke. It was extremely traumatic, but extremely bonding. All of New York kind of just, you got together, you helped each other, you did what you could for people who were displaced. It was very different to be in a city full of anonymous people that were there for different reasons versus being in a city that everybody experienced the same thing and they were all on the same side. I already loved this country, but like that experience, it was, it sealed the deal on like some fundamental, you know, from my soul. <laughs> I became really curious about what was it about us that made us so hated. And I started kind of connecting with the history of the United States. And I was in New York, so it was easy to do that because you could walk the walk. You could go to the places where the founding fathers had been. I became very, very curious about it, right? Up, up until then, it was a history of mostly men, mostly white men, basically all white men, that was so distant from me. And at that point, it became very close. And so I was at an investment bank that was very Republican. It was headed by Republicans. And I had a mentor who was also very tied into the Republican Party. And it kind of started my journey into politics where I would, I would just get involved. I'd go to meetings. I'd started to donate. Did not think of running at that point. I just really felt very protective over the country, over New York. It changed the way I felt about the United States. Like, wow, you know, this really, really formidable country that stands for so much that is good, but is not all powerful. You have to protect it. It was many, many years before 
my mentor even said you should run for office, which I, I and then it took many, many years after that before I actually even took it seriously. Christina didn't think she should run because she didn't fit the mold of what she thought a politician should look like. I wanted my husband to run. I always thought, you know, I married an American, a Caucasian American, and I thought it would be really interesting to get involved in politics. But I thought that he would be the good candidate because he was male and he was Caucasian. I had an interest. I never thought it would be possible. So I never thought about having that kind of an ambition for myself. I used to tell my husband, who was a veteran and has a great resume for somebody who to run, I thought it would be him. Between the two of us, I thought it was going to be him and I would be supporting him. She doesn't fit the norms of a Republican candidate. She also doesn't agree with the Republican Party's disdain for identity politics. I think the fact that the Republican Party does not play identity politics is counterproductive, especially in areas, you know, when you don't have a dominance of white men in areas like this. In fact, the Republican Party, doesn't whether they know it or not, they're a specific identity and they're a minority here because they're mostly white men. They're mostly old white men in the county that makes up most of my district. You know, the Republican Party really needs diversity. I mean, that's one of the arguments to run as a Republican is they really need a woman's touch and they need a minority's touch. I think that if you had more women in this country, you wouldn't have things like separation of families at the border. You know, that would just, you wouldn't have made that mistake. It wouldn't have happened. You know, and things like that where you require compassion and you could just avoid errors like that. You're having a certain demographic in this country running it. And that's how it's always been. And, and it doesn't represent all of us. So I think that you do need more perspectives. I think that we're on the verge of having a lot more women in Congress, and it's a good thing. Like many of the candidates I've spoken to for this show, Christina was inspired to run by the 2016 election. Donald Trump made disparaging and misogynistic remarks towards and about women throughout the 2016 election. He also spoke negatively about immigrants and the impact they have on the U.S. While many women still voted for him, others felt their party was leaving them behind. 2016 was also the time that Trump was running and the rhetoric against immigrants was getting really bad. It was so one-sided, the talk, that it was making immigrants look like they were all illegal, they were all unskilled. And I'm like, I, I'm an immigrant. <laughs> you know. So I thought it would have been, it would add value to actually step up to the plate and call attention to myself because I was an immigrant. I thought the identity of being an immigrant was very timely. And then I, I kind of got the will to run at that point. And when Trump won, I kind of lost the will to run because he was so controversial. And I have to be honest, I'm a centrist. I, I didn't vote for him. And so I, I wasn't going to run. And then I and then I was asked to run because I was already thinking about it. And I was, you know, putting things in place. And I, and when I was finally asked to run, I had to think it through in terms of de-risking running under the party of Trump because I'm running as a Republican. That was the risk I needed to get my head around. And I thought that risk was lower when I made the decision to run than it's actually proving to be right now. He was a catalyst in a kind of the opposite way, right? <laughs> I was um, running against his thesis. Christina's very much not alone in being a Republican in opposition to the president. Christine Matthews, Jennifer Lim, and Megan Malloy have all distanced themselves from the party's current leader. Christine Matthews, who we heard from earlier, was a lifelong Republican before the 2016 election. 
the biggest dissonance for me now is having worked all these years as a Republican and seeing a very marked change after the 2016 election in who the Republicans are becoming, what the Republicans are becoming. And that's not something I'm comfortable with. So for me, I now identify as an independent. The Republican Party has become a cult of Trump. And I'm not okay with him. I'm not okay with that direction. The contract that I made with the Republican Party was one that sort of was cemented and occurred in the late 80s. I and pro-choice. I'm not a single-issue pro-choice voter, but I'm pro-choice. And at that point, that was perfectly fine. In the Republican Party, there were pro-choice and pro-life, pro-environment, moderate Republicans. Increasingly, what's happened to the Republican Party, and this predates Trump, of course, is that you know those New England, moderate, Northeastern Republicans have left the party, have lost, and the party has largely become defined by people in the South or in the Midwest. And it has gotten older, wider, and less educated. So as the you know demographics of the party have changed, so too have the values and the policies. I remember my first level of discomfort occurring in 2008. I've always liked John McCain, but when he picked Sarah Palin, I was really uncomfortable with her particularly her drill baby drill. I just thought that was just ignorant. And I I do feel like she was sort of the start. That was the opening of the door to this sort of populist, unthinking mob mentality that seems to have overtaken the Republican Party. I remember talking to my husband and saying, you know, I don't know about this. And he said, listen, stay in the party, work towards change, be that person who stands up for what you believe in. So I was like, okay, we'll do. And then in 2013, I joined together with two other women. And the three of us wanted to help the Republican Party after the 2012 loss. One of the findings was the party really needs to work to reach out to, you know, obviously non-whites, to Hispanics, and do a better job with women. So for the 2014 election cycle, we worked on six to eight U.S. Senate races. We worked for the party. We did a lot of work and felt really good about it. As we were inching towards 2016, that really kind of fell apart with the nomination of Donald Trump and then with him winning. And ever since he won, the party, you know, we just felt like this is really incompatible with reaching out to women. I mean, it's it's just more like a joke. After Donald Trump was elected, I decided that I wasn't comfortable in the Republican Party. What's weird is I thought I wouldn't have any work. And I have so much work right now. I'm so busy. I was expecting to kind of be alone in the wilderness. And on some levels, I am alone in the wilderness a little bit. There's definitely a never Trump contingent. And there's some very high profile names. I don't feel alone in terms of finding people who also share my beliefs about this. It just feels alone in that there is no structure. There's no identity. We have a basically a two-party system here. You pick a Republican side or a Democratic side, and you work on that side. It's not like I'm a computer programmer or a banker who doesn't identify with my party anymore. I'm somebody who's worked 30 years in this business where you pick a side. Christine finally said enough is enough. She decided she couldn't try to change from within any longer. Jenny Lim and Megan Malloy are taking a different tact. They formed a group called Republicans for Hillary during the 2016 election. And after Hillary Clinton lost, they renamed the organization Republicans for Progress. So back in May of 2016, 
a bunch of us in the policy space had been getting increasingly agitated as Republicans seemed to be getting on board with Donald Trump as the nominee when Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan decided to endorse Trump before he was officially nominated. That kind of broke the last straw on the camel's back. There was a bunch of us who got together at the St. Regis Hotel over some wine, very D.C. founding, and we decided that we had to get out there and be public and start Republican Women for Hillary. At the beginning, it was a little disheartening because, you know, we thought that we would start this small movement and we would have so many other Republicans join with us quickly and in large numbers, and they didn't which was disappointing, one, that we didn't build up the steam initially that we thought we would, and two, we were disappointed in our party that folks weren't realizing all of the bad that was happening in the party and in the country as a whole, quite frankly. It's really been empowering to have that voice of opposition within the party. At this point, we don't have a lot to lose. It's either we speak out for what we know is right and we speak out for what we think uh, the party should be and what the party was when we got our start in politics, or we kind of lose the party, you know, if it isn't already lost in a sense. I would definitely not characterize the Republican Party as pro-woman right now, (laughs) unsurprisingly. We can't, as a Republican Party, keep harping on these already decided social issues, right? You know, whether it's equal marriage or reproductive rights and Roe v. Wade. We have a lot of settled law and trying to relitigate that and make that your social platform, I, I think, is a losing proposition. To be more pro-woman moving forward, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> but on a basic level, kind of what we're trying to promote is the Republican Party can't even start to come up with the right steps forward on issues that affect women when they don't have women at the table. And I would say, too, just it's not just policy that makes the party more welcoming to women. I think it's the language and the behavior of the leaders within the party. When you have party leadership and folks that are extremely high up in the administration calling women different names and treating women very poorly and looking the other way when accounts of abuse of women are reported, that's not very welcoming to women. And I don't think women want to play any sort of role in the party. So it becomes a cycle at that point. So... We've got to get back to a point of, at the very least, respecting women within the party. Jenny and Megan are trying to change the party from within. That work is really important. Women are cited as more productive lawmakers because they more frequently reach across the aisle. But reaching across the aisle works much better if there's someone reaching back from the other side. For now, it's an uphill battle. For Christina Osmeña, that means she's focusing on meeting the people of her district and running her best race, even if winning is a serious long shot. She's running in tech country, Northern California. Running as a Republican in California is a far cry from running as a Republican in other parts of the country, like the South. It makes it much easier to think about being a centrist. This district is a majority minority. So it's about 33% Asian. About 12% of those Asians are Filipino. About 25% of them are Latino. Tech industry is very big here. We're the district right north of the Silicon Valley, but basically we're northern Silicon Valley. So Palo Alto is in San Mateo County, right, which is where Stanford is. So we're right there. Um, so a lot of people who work in tech live here. So Facebook, I think, is technically in my district. I mean, there are a number of large tech companies that are in this district or have offices in this district. YouTube is here. I mean, all the hundreds of tech companies. This place is startup land. And then in the northern part of the district, Very quietly, you have the center of the biotech industry. So you have 
two of the most dynamic industries in my district. Number one issue, cost of housing. By far, universal cost of housing. To buy like a two-bedroom fixer-upper in the town next door is $2 million or more. You know, when you have inflationary activity that's done at the federal level, it translates almost directly into inflation here in the housing market because that money goes into the investment industry and then it ends up getting invested in California because there are so many startups and so many companies to invest in. And so it's making it hard for normal people who want jobs to buy, and it's making it very, very difficult for people who didn't come here with a lot of skills to afford just staying here and for people to have their children grow up here and then and then live right beside them. And then, of course, the high rents are affecting the cost of living. Like many moderate Republican candidates, it's going to be a really uphill battle for Christina. She's running against Democratic incumbent Jackie Speer, who's represented the 14th district since 2013. Before that, she represented California's 12th district. Christina hasn't focused on raising money, and she openly talks about how this might be the first of multiple attempts to run for office. I'm running against an incumbent in a D-plus 27 district, and I'm, I enjoy campaigning, so I'm going to focus on campaigning. And if anybody wants to raise funds and take it over for me, I'll let them. But um, it's three months left, and I'm going to focus on what I want to do, which is interact with people. Sometimes it takes more than one election cycle. Still, Christina says she's excited about the upswing of women candidates. I don't know what's motivating everybody else, if it's the same thing. But I feel like it's like the tide has turned and it's become acceptable for women to run. And in 2010, when my mentor suggested it, it seemed a little ridiculous. You're really putting yourself out there if you're a woman to run. I mean, like, who do you think you are? You have such a high opinion of yourself, you know? And now it's very acceptable to run. She's also running to inspire the next generation. My kids don't like it. They want me to stop and they're tired of me going out all the time. They're 10 and 11. I really hope, though, that one of the things that happens, and I'm sure this has happened to you, actually, I'm sure that some of the other moms that have run are probably thinking, you know, this is going to occur to my kids when they're older. And it's not going to be such a distant possibility. It's, you know, my mom did it. Okay, these are the steps and these are the lessons. So I take my learning to them and I hope it occurs to them that they can do this when they grow up. I bet you that it will. We spoke with a lot of women on this episode who feel discontent when it comes to the status quo of the Republican Party. There are a lot of people like them. That being said, there are many, many people who feel just fine about where things are going for the GOP. To be clear, they just won a presidential election. They hold power in both chambers of Congress. The big question is, as the party base gets older, whiter, and more male, what does it look like in the future? I mean, I think the the party needs to listen to its own advice, you know, be more pro-woman. You know, we've had some whisperings here and there of paid maternal and paternal leave and some more pro-women's policies being put forward, but nothing's really moved in that area. You know, I think policies aside, we should be a party that is not so centered around the negative rhetoric that I think our president and a lot of the Republican lawmakers have been focusing so much of their time on. But, you know, in my ideal world, I think it's a policy that kind of continues along the lines of traditional fiscal Republican tenets, but is much more progressive on social issues. Even if you just look at only Republican voters between, say, 18 and 35 right now, 
they're pretty socially liberal and still, I think, relatively conservative on fiscal issues. So if the party is to continue to survive going forward, it's got to look at its younger voter base and kind of match up with what they're voting for and what they want to see in a party or else they're going to lose all those voters. The majority of Americans are displeased with the partisan gridlock in Congress. How can we enact change? We know that women tend to be better about reaching across the aisle. Two of the most powerful people in Congress are Republican women who have voted counter to party lines. That's why this is so important. We spoke this week about how Christina Osmeña initially shied away from politics because she felt she didn't fit the mold as a woman and a person of color. Next week, we're diving deeper into that topic. Women of color have historically been the least represented and have had the hardest time getting elected. But that's starting to change. In 2016, when we had a woman at the top of the ticket for the first time in history of one of the two major parties for president of the United States, in the U.S. House, there was a zero net gain for women. There was total status quo. There were different women. The one good news story in that year was that we saw an increase in the women of color serving in the House. A story that hasn't been covered is that although the 23 million Black women in this country are still underrepresented and underserved, over the last couple of election cycles, we have been inching along. More of us are stepping off the sidelines to run for office. More on that coming to you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends. And if you didn't, let me know. Let's start a conversation. This movement is all about reaching out to the other, increasing empathy for opposing viewpoints, and sharing in the quest for justice and progress. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan, follow us on Instagram at WMN.media, or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.